We begin a new series today, as I mentioned. We're going to start calling this new series the Classics. We're going to look at many of the Old Testament, maybe even New Testament characters that we love and hold dear from our Sunday school days, right? And we have gone through four New Testament books since I've been your pastor, and we haven't really touched the Old Testament very much. So we're going to dip our toes in the Old Testament as we're going to start looking at the classics today. And we're going to look at a classic story. It's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the story of the fiery furnace. It's found in Daniel chapter 3. And we're going to read the entire account of that today as we begin our new series called The Classics. As we look at the title today called A Test of Tests. A Test of Tests. Before we get to the scripture, did you ever fail to do the right thing? Come on, right? Today? Did you ever fail to set your clocks? Did you ever fail to do the right thing? I'm going to share a story with you that's probably going to make you look badly at me. And I think I've shared it before. But um, whenever I think of something that I failed to do, this, this one's always at the top of the list. Um, when I was in college, <laughs> I, was, I started dating a girl or seeing a girl, whatever the word is, talking with a girl, uh, messaging a girl, saying hi to a girl, whatever the word is. Uh, I was a freshman. It was the first time I ever dated. I didn't date in high school, so I, I was new to this dating thing. And I, I started liking this girl and talking to this girl in my English class. And we went out a couple times. I took her to the banquet. I took her to a play. And one other time, and I don't remember exactly what that one was, but I started seeing this girl a little bit, and we were getting to know each other. And for whatever reason, I just lost interest. <laughs> and uh, we weren't like an official couple or anything like that, so I didn't know what the proper protocol was for just ending it. Because we hadn't really started it. You know what I mean? It was one of those limbo relationships. And so I was, I was not a good guy back then. My strategy for letting this girl know that we were done was to avoid her. I know, and it's a small campus. At CSU, it's probably a campus of 500 people, and my strategy was just to send a message by not talking to her anymore, not getting together with her anymore. <laughs> Please do not take that as advice. That is not advice. I'm telling you, this is the bad thing to do. I failed to do the right thing. But in a small campus, it's kind of hard to avoid people. You can't really blend in with the crowd that much. So I, I remember going to the cafeteria and my head being on a swivel, wondering, is this girl here? Is she here? Looking around for her, finding out where she is, keeping a wide perimeter, just in case one day we would run into each other and she'd be like, uh, are you okay with me? What's up? So for several days and weeks, I remember just trying to avoid this girl and doing an okay job at it. I only had one class with her. I sat on the other side of the classroom. It was a jerky thing to do, but I didn't know how to let her know that I didn't really want to see her anymore. But one day I went to uh, a market, Weiss Markets, I think it was, and just getting a couple items from my dorm, and she happened to be there. And I caught her with my, my eye, and I was like, oh, no. It's easy enough to avoid her on a big campus, but now I'm in a, in a small market. How am I going to avoid her now? So I remember kind of watching her the entire time, what aisle she was going down. And I didn't want to run into her because I thought if I ran into her, she'd have some confrontational thing to say to me, like, dude, what happened? You know, what happened with us? Where have you been? Do you hate me? And I didn't want any of those things. So I remember going down aisles in the store that I had no business going down. Uh, women products, interna <laughs> international food. I remember just kind of scaling the store, just waiting to see when she left and then hanging back a little bit before I actually did my shopping. Guys, that was the wrong thing to do. You know that, right? Clearly, that was the wrong thing to do. I should have sent her a message. I don't know if there were phones that day, but te texting was not a big deal. Facebook was not out. And so I used my one play, which was ignore her. There is a second half to that story that I don't have the time to tell, but uh, that's the wrong thing. Did you ever fail to do the right thing? We're going to look at a story today of three guys that do not fail to do the right thing. In fact, the story we're going to look at today, a lot of scholars believe these guys are teenagers when this thing happens. So if you have your Bibles, go to Daniel chapter 3. We're eventually going to read the entire text, but I do want to start you at Daniel chapter 1. I want to give you a little bit of context. And I know on the screen it's probably really hard to read, but if you have your Bibles, go to Daniel chapter 1, verses 3 to 7, because I need to give you some context of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because at that time, in Daniel chapter 1, the king is going to choose special men for some special tasks. And he's going to have his men look around and find the most special guys to do these tasks. So I want to pick up the reading in verse 3, listen to what the Word of God says. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, if you guys are looking for baby names, there's one. 
Ashpenaz, the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. So there we find the three guys coming onto the scene. These guys are most likely teenagers. They've been selected by the king's men to do some special tasks for the king. I want to bump our eyes down to verse 17 now of Daniel chapter 1 and listen to what the word says because the king now recognizes that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are even more special than the other special men that were selected. Listen to what it says. In verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave, them, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. So even these four guys are heads above the other special men that were selected by the king. And that's interesting to note. Three of them are three of our main characters that we're going to look at today. So now the king has a dream. In chapter 2, the king has a dream and he brings his best men to try to interpret the dream. And no one can do it. Everyone's failing that he believes should help him interpret the dream. So he brings Daniel before him because someone told him Daniel's really good at interpreting visions and dreams. And so after Daniel comes before the king and he correctly interprets the king's dream, the king honors Daniel's God. And I want you to listen to what it says in chapter 2, verses 46 to 49, because this is an interesting stage that is set before we get to chapter 3. In verse 46 of chapter 2, it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face, and paid homage to Daniel, and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he pointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. So Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 has already recognized that Daniel is a man of God and that Daniel's God is pretty great, pretty powerful, pretty wise. But that opens chapter 3. When we get to chapter 3, a very awkward scene takes place. And now if you have your Bibles, I want you to join me in chapter 3 because we're going to read the entire account of Daniel chapter 3, because you need to understand the entire story. So Daniel chapter 3, we're going to pick it up at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the ded dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. They stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. 
And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews among you who who you have appointed over the affairs of the prophets of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Verse 13, Then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it usually was heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Now that would be depressing if that's where it ended, right? But in verse 24, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over their bodies of the men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in them. And set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. And the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Is that an amazing story? It kind of teaches itself, doesn't it? It's an amazing story. I've often just awed at this story. And we want to look at this story. We want to look at what this story means today. We want to look at what it means back then in their context. And we want to look at what it means in the context of what we know here as we live in the New Covenant and the New Testament. See, the the greatest commandment ever given from God to man, if you remember, 
says this. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, I believe Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have known that commandment because it comes from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 9. Listen to what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of the house and on your gates. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have known the greatest commandment ever given to man, as we do. They also would have known the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments that hopefully we know by now, but I'm going to read them here. They come from Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 to 6. Number one says this, You shall have no other gods besides me. You shall have no other gods besides me. Number two says this, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. It's interesting. But they would have known these commandments. They would have known the greatest commandment ever given to man. They would have known the Ten Commandments, especially the first two commandments. By the time the golden image was rolled out to them, those commandments would have been in their minds and in their hearts. And now King Nebuchadnezzar has a commandment. And this is what he says to everyone. He says this, You are commanded, O peoples, nations and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Now, most likely, these three guys are teenagers. And according to the context of the Daniel 3, every single person bows down to the image. But King Nebuchadnezzar is about to be thrown a curveball. Because these three guys, although they're teenagers, they have a dilemma on their hands, don't they? A dilemma. They know the greatest commandment ever given to man. They know the two commandments of the Ten Commandments. And now they've heard the commandment given by Nebuchadnezzar. They have a dilemma. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego can either obey God or King Nebuchadnezzar, but they cannot obey them both. Someone was going to be angry with them, and someone was going to recognize their devotion to them. It's a dilemma, isn't it? You ever had a dilemma? You ever had a dilemma, something that was tough to figure out? Uh, Haddon, you're going to remember this. Only a couple days ago, we had a dilemma. Haddon had this really exciting day at school. They were going to do some karate thing at school. Remember that, Haddon? (laughs) Told you. Kids don't forget. They were going to have this karate thing at school, and Haddon was pretty excited. Although he didn't know which part of the day it was going to be, he was really excited, looking forward to it, because he was going to watch people chop blocks. And were you going to get to chop block yourself? Chop something in half? Yeah? Kick some guy down? But on that day, there happened to be a lot of bad weather. It was really icy that morning. It was only a few days ago. And we had a dilemma because I I started to go out. Haddon was in the car. I got in our car, and we started to drive, and the roads were pretty bad. And we have a four-wheel drive, so typically we don't struggle in in the snow and ice. But it was so bad, I was already slipping on our driveway. So we actually got out to the road. We started driving on the main road, and we got down to where it's kind of hilly, and we noticed that there was like 20 cars that were just in a traffic jam. And I, I guess there's another way to go to his school, but at that moment I made a decision that probably we shouldn't be on the road. We had already slipped up to that point, and now I saw there was probably an accident ahead of us. So I made the decision to turn around and go home. And I was just hoping, just hoping, that by the time we got Haddon to school, when the weather was clear and they salted the roads a little bit, that the karate thing would still be on and Haddon wouldn't miss it. Sad to say, by the time we got to school, only an hour and a half later, the karate thing was over. Hadn't had missed the entire thing. Now, we made it up to him. But that was a dilemma. I remember, that, I remember being sad about that, even as a dad, going, man, that was, that was tough. Because I wanted my son to experience that. But at the same time, I didn't want to endanger our lives in order to get there. That was a dilemma. That's exactly what dilemma means. And now Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have a really tough dilemma. 
Okay? The consequence of disobeying King Nebuchadnezzar is a very severe consequence. They are going to be thrown into a fiery furnace if they do not bow down and worship King Nebuchadnezzar's golden statue. You ever been burned? I can ask my wife that because my wife, for some reason, burns her hands all the time. It's mostly scar tissue. Um, but if you've ever burned yourself, burning is, is, is a really painful experience. These guys are teenagers, and the king just told them that if they do not bow down to the statue, they're going to be thrown into a burning, fiery furnace. And I'm guessing, this is conjecture, but I'm guessing this is not a vain threat. They can probably see the furnace. They can see the smoke rising up. And they probably know a little bit about King Nebuchadnezzar. He's probably a maniac. He's probably a vicious dictator. And so he's threatening them with a fiery furnace. It's probably not a vain threat because they actually believe who King Nebuchadnezzar is and what he's capable of doing. So that's the consequence. It's laid before them. If you do not bow down, I will throw you into that burning, fiery furnace. Now, I'm not going to poll the audience, but I want you to consider what you would do. If someone said, bow down to my statue or you're going to die in a furnace of fire. I can imagine, guys, even as a pastor, I would probably try to rationalize and justify the situation going, okay, Lord, I'm going to bow down, but I don't mean it. I want you to know I'm going to bow down, but I don't mean it. I'm just doing to spare my life. And then later on, I'd be like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have done that. But I would justify it going, no, I didn't want to die. But these three guys, these three guys do something remarkable. But before we look at that, I want to understand what is the reward for staying devoted and faithful to King Nebuchadnezzar? What is the reward of doing so? Well, honestly, logically, they would live another day. If they bowed down to the statue, they would live another day. They wouldn't be thrown into the fiery furnace, and they would at least live another day. Is that a great consequence? I don't know, because Nebuchadnezzar sounds a lot like Hitler, if you know anything about him. Hitler was the kind of guy that even if you lived another day, there would be some reason he would get angry at you, and you might lose your life the next day or the next week. So you could probably spare your life a little bit, just by placating him and doing exactly what he asked you to do. But King Nebuchadnezzar has proven himself to be unpredictable. He's an unpredictable king, and the only thing they gain by staying devoted and faithful to King Nebuchadnezzar is to live another day. But that's it. There's no other reward. There's no other reward except letting their life live a little bit longer on the earth. So they know the consequence, and they know the reward of staying faithful to King Nebuchadnezzar. Now let's flip it on the head and let's look at the other commandment that was given to them by God. By God. What is the consequence of disobeying God? I want to take you to a passage in Matthew chapter 10. I told you we're going to use a lot of the New Testament to make sense of this. But in Matthew chapter 10, I want you to listen to what Jesus says regarding uh, his will. Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 to 33. I believe it's going to be on the screen. He says, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus says, If you acknowledge me, I will acknowledge you before my Father. If you deny me, I will deny you before my Father. That's interesting. So we understand the consequence of disobeying God. But we also know this, God himself has a fiery furnace, doesn't he? There's a lot of passages I could read regarding the concept of hell, but I want to take you to one in Luke chapter 13, and I want you to listen to what the, what the Lord Jesus Christ says, describing following him and the consequence of not doing so. Luke 13, we're going to pick up the reading in verse 22. He says, He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who be saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And the people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, 
some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. Now, the interesting thing about it is that God has a furnace too. And I don't understand every aspect of hell, but I understand enough to understand that I never want to find myself flirting with hell. And I would say that confidently to my church as well. We cannot flirt with hell. We cannot flirt with the wrath of God. We cannot flirt with God's furnace. Because he says, even in Luke 13, you will be cast out. He says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in this place. Now, I don't know exactly what gnashing of teeth looks like, but I don't want to know either. I don't want to know what gnashing of teeth and weeping looks like. So that is a place, immediately, as soon as I hear it, I want to avoid. Right? That's just common sense. I don't want to go there. I don't want to flirt with going there. So we understand the consequence of disobeying God is a little bit, maybe even way more, severe than the one of King Nebuchadnezzar. But what is the reward for staying faithful to God? What is the reward for staying devoted to God? There's several answers to this question. Number one is God's great pleasure and happiness. The first thing you gain by staying devoted to the Lord is you get his great pleasure and his great happiness. And I hope that is something that you want since you've gotten to know the Lord. But you also get a lot of great things out of this. You get eternal life with God. You get eternal glory that never fades, never goes away. You get eternal treasures that will never fade and will never spoil. And, according to the word of God, it says this all over, you get God's covenantal love and protection both now and forever. God will watch out for you. God will be your father. God will be your protector. God will be your provider from now until eternity. If you stay faithful to him, everything good is yours. King Nebuchadnezzar cannot say that, can he? Those who stay devoted to King Nebuchadnezzar could not say that about the king. But our God has promised us these rewards if we stay faithful to him. So we come to their decision. After the dilemma, I don't know if there was a conversation between the three teenagers. I don't know if that actually took place, but they come and make their decision. They're going to stay faithful to God, and they're going to directly disobey the commandment of King Nebuchadnezzar. Have you ever been in a situation like that where you couldn't obey someone in authority because it was against your conscience to do so? That's difficult, isn't it? A boss, a parent, someone that says, I want you to do this, and you believe it's honestly the right thing for me not to. That's kind of what these guys were dealing with. Now, there was a severe consequence, but I think these guys honestly thought, who is King Nebuchadnezzar compared to our God? Who is King Nebuchadnezzar lined up next to our God? I want to read you a quote from Matthew Henry. I found this quote to be very interesting regarding Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He says, They know they must obey God rather than men. They must suffer rather than sin. And they must not do evil that good may come. They were resolved rather to die in their integrity than to live in their iniquity. Isn't that a great quote? They were resolved rather to die in their integrity than live in their iniquity. How important is integrity to you? How important is devotion and faithfulness to the Lord to you? See, disobedience to God is something we call sin. Sin. Maybe it's a term that's become numb to us, but it's not numb to God. Disobedience to God is sin. Now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego make their decision. We're not going to bow down to the statue, even though 99.9% of the people are bowing down. They're not going to. And the consequence, I told you, it wasn't a vain consequence. King Nebuchadnezzar, upon hearing this, is full of fury, full of wrath. And what does he do? He binds them and throws them into the furnace. It wasn't a vain threat. Now, sometimes with my own children, I make threats that aren't real. Uh, Sometimes I'm weird. I just say to my children, you better eat your lunch or you're going to have to lick the carpet. And they know that's not real. Hopefully, that'd be a weird thing. I should probably be taken away from my kids at that point. That's not a real threat. But sometimes, and I think by the tone, my children can tell that my threats are real. My threats are real. The thing that I'm telling them to do, and if they don't do it, there will be a grave consequence. That I I am speaking truth. That they don't want to face dad and his anger. I want to read you another quote from Matthew Henry, which said this. Listen to this about the concept of God's fiery furnace. He said, what is this, referring to Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace, what is this to the second death? 
So that furnace into which the tares shall be cast in bundles to the lake which burns eternally with fire and brimstone. Let Nebuchadnezzar heat his furnace as hot as he can. A few minutes will finish the torment of those who are cast into it. But hellfire tortures and does not kill. The pain of damned sinners is more exquisite, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And those have no rest, no intermission, no cessation of their pains, who have worshipped the beast and his image. We cannot flirt with hell. We cannot afford to flirt with eternal damnation. Can we? No matter what happens to us in this life, no matter what we are not able to have or experience in this life, none of us can flirt with hell. Now, that is the consequence of not staying devoted to God. But what is the reward? Because there's both a consequence and a reward of staying faithful to God. Or not staying faithful to God. The reward is this. After being thrown into the fiery furnace, because they are thrown into the fiery furnace, God's covenantal love shows up. Because I told you, God has covenantal love and promises that are for his children. And although they understand there's a consequence for not obeying King Nebuchadnezzar, God's covenantal love more than makes up for that consequence, doesn't it? Because what happens in this story is so remarkable, is not are they thrown into the fire and they're not hurt, but something even more remarkable. The Lord goes with them. The Lord goes with them into the fiery furnace. King Nebuchadnezzar looks in and he's very perplexed by this, going, wait a minute, guys. We threw three men bound in the furnace, and I see a fourth man, and he looks like a son of the gods. Even Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that. Jesus, we can say, I don't know if it's actually Jesus or an angel, but I like to think, and a lot of commentators believe, that it could be Jesus himself in the furnace with them, fellowshipping with their sufferings, or as we'll find, the lack thereof. But it's interesting that the Lord goes with them into the fiery furnace, so they're not scared. They're not scared. Do what I've called you to do, and I want you to know that every step of the way, I will go with you. I will be with you. Aren't you thankful for that of your Lord? Aren't you thankful that he doesn't just give you tasks and leave and say, get it done, I'll see you in heaven? But he says, I'll go with you. Uh, My children sometimes are scared of the dark. Uh, They're just at that age where sometimes things, shadows, things in the night scare them. So sometimes my children, my little boys, my twins especially, they don't like going into the bathroom because it's dark and they have to turn the light on. And our light switch, for some reason, the one at the beginning of the door doesn't work. You have to go by the mirror. You have to walk in a little bit. And so my, my twins will come and say, Daddy, come with me. Come turn the light on for me. And we're trying to train them that they can go in by themselves. But for a while, I was willing to do it saying, yeah, I'll go in with you. I'll go in and I'll turn the light on. And It's interesting to me that the Lord goes with them into the fiery furnace because he could have protected them without doing that, right? He could have kept them from harm without himself going into the furnace. But why did he do that? Because he wants us to understand that he fellowships with us. He understands that if he asks us to do something hard, he's going to be there every step of the way. And that's the first reward. The Lord goes where they go. Number two is the Lord protected them with his covenantal love and let no harm come to them whatsoever. Why? Because the fiery furnace submits to Jesus. God created everything. Jesus himself created everything. The fire bows to Jesus. If the fire is going to harm Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's because Jesus allows it to. And if not, the fire will obey. The fire will lose all its fiery characteristics and painful characteristics, and it will not hurt God's men. And that's exactly what happens. They're cast into the fire. The fire doesn't go away. It's still there, but it does not harm his men. And finally, the Lord was glorified when King Nebuchadnezzar saw the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the power of their God, and he commands that everyone, everyone, including his men, his high men, should honor Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God. Because he says, what God can protect like this God? Even evil King Nebuchadnezzar recognizes the glory of God. And I find that interesting. I want to read you a passage from Isaiah 43, verses 1 to 3. Listen to what it says. Probably another passage that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have known. 
He says, but now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. They shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Do you think maybe that was resonating in their minds when they thought about going into the fire, what that might be like, and they remember the promises of their great God, that he will go with them, and that he will let no harm befall them. These guys are confident. And we're going to look at how are they so confident here in a minute. But I'm guessing, I'm, it is a guess, but I'm guessing they were thinking of Isaiah 43, verses 1 to 3, saying, even if we go into the fire, the Lord will go with us, and the Lord will keep us from harm. Here's a question, though. How did these teenagers make such a mature and godly decision? Because when I was a teenager, I hardly made any mature and godly decisions. Maybe you guys remember yourself as teenagers. I didn't make a lot of mature decisions. These guys make one of the most mature decisions I've ever come across. When 99.9% of the people are bowing down, and you see that, and you see the consequence of a burning, fiery furnace, and you say, I'm not bowing down, no matter what. How? How did they make such a mature, godly decision? I came up with five answers. Number one, they knew God. They knew him intimately. They had intimate knowledge of their God. This wasn't some guy they just studied and could get some test answers right about. They knew God. They had walked with God. They would experienced his love firsthand. Have you? Have you experienced God's love firsthand? They knew God. They also loved God. They loved him. They genuinely wanted him pleased. I see that in my children from time to time. I see them that they genuinely want mom and dad happy and pleased. And when, the, when you could tell that they do it for that reason, it's special. It's a special thing. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego loved their God. They also feared their God. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing to have a healthy fear of God because they knew deep within them we do not trifle with God. We could trifle with King Nebuchadnezzar, but we cannot trifle with the God of the universe. So they knew God, they loved God, they feared God. That's how they made their decision. Number two, they stood together. My dad often says this when he's teaching through this passage, is that these guys were always together. At least it seems that way. Every time Shadrach is mentioned, Meshach and Abednego are there. Every time Meshach is mentioned, Shadrach and Abednego are there. Every time Abednego is mentioned, Shadrach and Meshach are there. There's strength in numbers. Do you see that? And I don't know. I don't know if there was a conversation as soon as the golden statue came out. Maybe they huddled together and said, guys, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? We have a dilemma here. And they said, together in unison, we've got to stand. We have to resist. We have to stand. We have to remember the promises of our great God. We have to remember that our God is on his throne, and we're not going to bow. They stood together, and there's strength in numbers when you stand together, is there not? Number three, they considered the reward They consider the reward, and there's a lot of rewards when you stay faithful to the Lord, but one of them is a legacy, a legacy of devotion to the Lord. How do we know that? Because we're talking about them today. We're talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thousands and thousands of years after this took place. Their legacy continues to ripple because they did not bow down in one instance to the king's statue. What a legacy! What a reward that their legacy would live on and on and on. Number four, they believed God and they took his promises to the bank. Like I said, I believe they knew Isaiah 43, 1 to 3, and I believe they recalled Isaiah 43 and said, even if we die in the furnace, because they said that's possible, even if we die in the furnace, he will be there on the other side. He will be there. He will protect us. He will keep us. He will welcome us. He will be our God, even if we have to go through a few seconds or minutes of pain and torment. Our God will not abandon us. He will be there on this side or on the next. We don't need to be afraid. Isn't that a great thing when you understand who your God is? When you're going through something kind of difficult, something painful, losing someone or someone near to you, or some some kind of sickness you're dealing with, or maybe some kind of financial stress, and you recall 
the promises of God. And he says to you, you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to fear this. I am God and I love you. I am God and I sent my son to die for you. You don't need to be afraid. I'll go with you every step of the way. And number five, they saw their life on the earth through the lens of glorifying God, nothing else and nothing less. They knew their purpose on the earth was not to have fun, not to be praised, not to collect a lot of toys. They had one specific purpose, to glorify God. You know that's our purpose, right, as Christians? We have one specific purpose, to glorify God no matter what. And they knew their purpose, and they embraced their purpose. And their purpose was really important, and so is ours. Now, we could end there, and that's an amazing story, and we would gain a lot from it. But I want to look at a New Testament parallel. Because we don't live back in the days of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We live today, even 2,000 years after Jesus Christ lived upon the earth. But I think there's a parallel that we can draw out here before we close today. Because as you know, God's commandments are our commandments as well, aren't they? The greatest commandment ever given to man that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew, I know as well. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I have the exact same commandment that they had. So do you. I also know the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments. They're also eternal, to have no other gods besides God and to not make anything or let anyone make anything with their hands and for me to bow down and worship that thing. So this is exactly the same commandment that they had several thousand years ago. But you and I have been called to be devoted to God's representation or ambassador upon this earth, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. That is God's representation. That is God's ambassador. That is the Christ. That is the Messiah that we have been called to devote our lives to. Listen to the passage from Matthew 10, verses 37 to 39. Jesus says this, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Following Jesus is against the grain, is it not? But we are following the Son of God who came to this earth, who gave us his life, who gave us his blood, who rose from the dead, and 500 people testified that they saw him three days after he died. And we're called to stay faithful and devoted to that king. See, we don't have a King Nebuchadnezzar demanding that we bow down to his golden statue, do we? I don't face that. I haven't faced that yet. I haven't had any king or boss or parent come to me and say, bow down to the statue or else. That has never happened to me, and I'm guessing it's never happened to you. But is there an evil ruler on this earth? And I don't mean anybody in this nation. Yes, there is. The devil. We just came out of a study from Ephesians chapter 6 where we understand that the devil is what's called in 2 Corinthians 4.4 the ruler of this age. He's the ruler of this age. Is he evil? He's incredibly evil. He's incredibly unpredictable, maybe. He's incredibly like a dictator. And he has commanded that every single one of us bow down and worship all kinds of images and false gods, hasn't he? Money. Worship money. Money is powerful. Money can get you great things. Money can bring you a lot of happiness. Worship money. He also says, worship stature or success. That's the greatest thing we have. Become someone prominent. That's what you need to worship. That's what you need to bow down down to. That's what you need to give your life to. How about prominent people like politicians or actors or athletes or musicians? Worship them. They're worthy of your worship and devotion. Look how popular they are. Look how famous they are. Look how well-liked they are. You should worship them. Possessions, relationships, comforts, hobbies, and self. Every day we're inundated by these things where the ruler of this age says, bow down, worship these. Love these. Devote yourself to these things. These things are great. Which means we have a dilemma, don't we? We have the exact same dilemma that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have. 
We can either obey the Lord and stay devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ, or we can worship the false images and gods that the devil has said we should. But we cannot obey them both, can we? It says that in Scripture, you cannot love God and money. You cannot serve God and serve money. Someone is going to be angry with us, and someone's going to see our devotion to them. We will be found fighting someone. The Lord or the devil. We're going to fight someone. We're going to make someone upset with us, aren't we? Either the Lord or the devil. We can't obey them both. Which means we're going to have an enemy. We are going to 100% of mankind has an enemy. It's either God or it's the devil. Which enemy do you want? See, the consequences of disobeying the ruler of this age, the devil, are this. He's going to hate us. He will hate us. He will do everything he can to tempt us and attack us and belittle us every chance he gets. If we do not bow down to his images, he's going to actively, purposefully hate us. If we side with the Lord and worship only him, the devil is going to harm us, try to harm us every day of our lives. Now, that's a severe consequence. I know what it's like to try to please the Lord and have a lot of opposition against me in doing so. It's because I have an enemy, and he hates me. And he's full of wrath, and he's full of fury, and he makes all kinds of threats against me. But what is the reward of staying devoted and faithful to the devil? Is there any reward? I guess you get a sample of earthly happiness. A morsel, a sample. You get a portion of happiness. Does it last? No, it doesn't last. Staying faithful to the devil has nothing of lasting value, just like staying faithful to Nebuchadnezzar had nothing of lasting value. And here's the reality that Scripture sings over and over and over. If you have treasures on the earth and none in heaven, you're going to lose every single one of them. They're going to fade. They're going to spoil. They're going to be stolen from you. They can't come with you to the other side. So what is the reward of staying faithful to the devil? There is no reward. There is no reward. Now, if we look at the consequence of disobeying the commandments of our Lord. So we've heard his commandments. We want to know those commandments are to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to have no other gods, to not make and bow, any, bow down to anything we make with our hands. But what is the consequence of disobeying the commandments of our Lord? I'm going to turn you to a passage in Hebrews chapter 10. One of the gravest, most sobering passages I've ever come across, but I think it's necessary for us to understand the consequence of not obeying what the Lord has taught us. Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 and 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, we've all heard the commandments, we all know what the commandments, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. The worst consequence that is waiting is for those who know the will of the Lord, who have heard his commandments and are crystal clear on what he wants and disobey him anyways. I told you before we can't flirt with hell. We can't flirt with damnation. We can't flirt with making God angry with us, can we? The consequence of not staying devoted to the Lord is that we line up with the devil. And when it's time to judge us, he will treat us like he's going to treat the devil. He's going to throw us in the place that he calls the second death or the lake of fire. When you don't sign up with the Lord, or line up with the Lord, I should say, you line up with the devil. And the consequence is grave and it's severe and it's supposed to rattle us in a good way to say, wake up. Wake up. Understand this. Understand it now. I don't want you to find this. I don't want you to perish. I don't want you to be damned. I'm going to tell you now, you cannot come to this furnace. You can come to a man-made furnace, but you cannot come to God's furnace. None of us. But is there a reward for staying devoted and faithful to the Lord? Absolutely. And it's the same reward that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have experienced. 
God's great pleasure and happiness. If we stay devoted to the Lord, we get his pleasure and get his happiness. And again, I hope that's something you want. Isn't your God great? Isn't he good? Isn't he loving? Doesn't he take care of you? Doesn't he provide for you? Isn't your Lord great and worthy of this? It doesn't stop there. You get eternal life. You get eternal glory. You get eternal treasures. You get God's covenantal love both now and forever. Starting today or whenever you gave your life to Jesus Christ. God says, I will be with you. I will never forsake you. Whatever hard thing you go through, I will go there first. And when you face something that is harmful and scary, I'll chase it away. I'll chase it away because I'm scarier. I'm bigger. I'm stronger. The scary thing doesn't have to scare you. Aren't you thankful for the Lord that does that? If you stay devoted to him, he will a hundredfold stay devoted to you. So we have a decision to make, just like they had a decision to make, to worship and be devoted to the things of the earth or worship and devote ourselves only to the Lord Jesus. That's our decision. And before we make our decision today, I want us to consider a few questions. These are questions to consider before we make our decision today because this decision is individual before it's corporate. You need to make this decision in your heart. And before you do so, I want you to consider these questions. Number one, who is to be loved? Who is to be loved, the world or the Lord? If you can only love one and it's true, you can only love one. Do you want to love the world and have the world be your God? Or do you want the Lord of the universe to be your God? You can only pick one. Who is to be loved? Who deserves your love and your affection and your tenderness and your devotion? Number two, who is to be feared? Is the devil to be feared? Is he the strongest, scariest version of an enemy there possibly is? Is there anyone who has greater power than the devil? Anyone who has a greater consequence for disobeying him than the devil? Anyone that you can think of? Yes, of course. God himself is the only one we should fear. Number three, what is temporary pleasure on this earth worth to us? What is it worth to have pleasure on the earth? What's it worth? Is it worth abandonment of our Lord? To gain a little bit of pleasure and joy upon the earth, is it worth abandoning our great Lord Jesus? I would hope you said confidently, no, it's not. It's not worth that. Number four, at what cost is pain and death to be avoided in this earth? I don't like pain. I avoid pain. I do whatever I can to avoid death. I don't chase after those things. But at what point is death and pain to be avoided? Is it worth eternal ruin? Is it worth eternal ruin to avoid a little bit of pain and suffering now? Of course it is not. Number five, does the fact that most people are doing it prove that it's the best thing to do? Because that logically sometimes is how our brains work, going, man, everybody does it. Remember when your mom said, listen, if everyone jumped off a bridge, would you? And you're going, oh, that sounds kind of cool. <laughs> I'd like to jump off a bridge. But that's the point. If everyone's doing it, does that make it the right thing? If you look back at the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you're going, guys, everyone else is doing it. It must be right. And these guys are going, no, that doesn't make it right. Just because it's common and popular doesn't make it the right thing to do. What are the things that the media loves? What are the things that the world loves? Are those the best things to love based on that? Number six, do we really believe there's an eternal life and treasures with God someday? I have to ask this question. Do you really believe what the Bible says? Not do you listen to it. Not do you nod your head and are convicted. But do you believe it? Do you stake your life upon it? That there really is eternal life and treasures with God waiting for you. Do you really believe that? If push comes to shove, and at some moment in life it will, will you bank upon the promises of God that you cannot touch right now? Because those promises change how we live. They change how we live. Number seven, have we learned about the covenant of love that we have with the Lord that will protect us? Do we believe his promises will not fail us? They cannot fail us because his name is on the line. If God's name is on the line, can he and will he fail us? 
No, he won't. No, he will not. Number eight, is God worth standing alone for? Is he worth standing in the face of fear for? Is he worth obeying his commands at any and all costs? Or we'll say it this way, is Jesus, the one we just celebrated, worthy of your devotion? I hope he is. I know he is. Number nine, do we want an advocate now and on judgment day? Do you want someone standing there at judgment day saying to God, I have paid for their sins. They're mine. They get to go in. I shed my blood for them. My body was broken for them. I am their Savior. They get to go in. Do you want an advocate now and on judgment day? And lastly, what's going to be our legacy? You guys ever heard that term, legacy? It's something about you that lives on beyond the grave, a memory that lives on beyond the grave. What is your legacy going to be? Are you going to live for the world and be forgotten forever like the world? Because that's what legacies do. If there's nothing eternal about your legacy, you're going to be forgotten. You're not going to be remembered. But what about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Do you think we remember them? Do you think God remembers them? Do you think forever in eternity in heaven, they're going to be remembered for this one thing they did? What is your legacy going to be? These guys were teenagers. Teenagers. And I don't know if I have the courage that they had. What is your legacy going to be? Living for the Lord or living for the world? And let's remember how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego made their decision. They loved the Lord, they feared the Lord, and they knew the Lord. And that's the same thing for us. If you want to make a mature and godly decision to stand for Jesus, you've got to know him, you've got to love him, and you've got to fear him. Number two, you've got to stand together. This is why church family time is so important. Gathering with the church is unifying, and unifying helps you make the right decision. When I look and see my church standing with me, I go, I can do this. I'm weak on my own, but when my church is standing right next to me, I got this. And Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego said, okay, they're all bowing down, but we're not. We're going to lock arms, and we're going to do the right thing today. Stand together. Number three, consider the reward. Eternal glory with God is coming. It is coming, Christian. Consider what it will be like when the Lord says, you loved me. You stayed devoted to me. You confessed me before the world. That's your legacy. Number four, believe the Lord and take his promises to the bank because God cannot fail us. He's incapable. I never thought I'd say that about God, but he's incapable of failing us. He's incapable of breaking his promises. It cannot and will not happen. Number five, see life on the earth through the lens of glorifying God, nothing else and nothing less. Our very existence is to honor our maker and redeemer and our Lord. I'm going to skip the last application points. I just want to hit you with these last couple passages, okay? And that's all we're going to do as we close here. I'm going to reread what Nebuchadnezzar said about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God. In verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the gods, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For who is like their God who can rescue in this way? Now, I told you there's a New Testament parallel for this story. One of the most amazing passages besides this one comes from Acts chapter 5. Peter and John are threatened. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were threatened. They're threatened that if you speak any more about the name of Jesus, we're going to kill you. Don't do it any longer. And in verse 40 of Acts chapter 5, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. And a lot of commentators believe that they had this thing called the cat of nine tails, that 40 lashes was supposed to kill you, so they would often do 39. Back it off one. So they called in the disciples, the apostles, and they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. 
Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. And listen to this part. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ Jesus is the Messiah. Amen? The question for you today is, will you pass the test of staying devoted to the Lord in the face of opposition from the devil, from the world, and from our own sinful flesh? He is worthy. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the legacy of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What a wonderful legacy it is. I just pray that you'd use that legacy in our hearts today, wherever we are, to finally stand up and say, I'm yours. I don't know why I've been holding back. I don't know why I've been dipping a foot in each camp. But Father, I am yours. Lord, I am yours today. I want you to know it. I will stand for you. I will obey you at any and all costs because you are my God. You love me and you will provide for me and protect me when I need you. Father, thank you. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who is so worthy of our devotion. I hope if we gain one thing from that today, it's that, is that Jesus is worthy of our devotion. We pray and thank you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.